part of the reason why I wanted to use my voice to tell my story is that I realized for the longest time in my life, by me staying quiet, I am helping protect the caregivers who were my abusers. Yeah. I'm helping take, I'm helping make them feel safe. I'm helping yeah. make their narratives come to the light when in reality it's like, no, that's not the truth. You, t- you, you both were horrible. You both abused me. You both are responsible. You're listening to Chemical Voices, a podcast exploring the lives of BIPOC, transracial adoptees, and survivors of complex trauma. Hi, I'm Jaslyn, your host, a nurse, and trauma release practitioner, curiously observing the human experience. As a Black woman and survivor of human trafficking, I've encountered many, many hardships. On the road to recovery, I discovered that storytelling unites us at heart and is where we find healing, inspiration, and encouragement. In each episode, you will hear stories from courageous souls and we will touch on subjects such as identity confusion, the impacts of racism, complex trauma, transracial adoption, and much more. How do we rise amid trials and tribulations? How do we invite softness into our lives? We touch on these and many other questions, so tune in to experience transformative storytelling and let's heal together. Hello, hello everybody and welcome. Today we have the gorgeous and courageous Sula Lubin in the studio and she is here to use her voice and share her story. This story is going to rock your world. Sula, welcome. Hi, Jasmine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for wanting to be here. Thank you for your courage, your strength, your light, and using your voice. I feel so, so honored. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I receive that. And um, thank you for your work that you're doing. This is very, like I told you before, this is very um, important. This is critical. This is saving lives. This is helping other survivors, no matter what age, to find not only the strength, but the vocabulary to be able to use next time we're speaking with someone that we trust or a therapist. That way we can continue to unpack and heal. So I thank you for this work. It's courageous. Not a lot of people can do this. Um, and I do believe you're aligned and appointed to do such, such a great work like this. So thank you. You've, you've helped me along the way. So thank Aww, you. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, let's go. Please share your story and you just start wherever you'd like. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Um, it started for me around four or five years old. Um, it was just my mom and I for a quite, you know, for the first four years of my life, she had a tumultuous relationship with my biological father and they ended up ending the relationship. Well, more so he kicked her out. Um, she had just came from Haiti, um, had her a very rough upbringing in poverty where unfortunately she wasn't given an education. It was all about survival. Um, and so she met my father, they fell in love and then he brought her here into America. And I guess their religions were completely different. Their beliefs, they became different people. They were high school, uh, teenage um, lovers. And then I guess um, he moved to America and after bringing her back, um, to the U.S. in the late 80s, um, he, they decided to go their separate ways. He became very violent towards her. And um, later on, she would find out that she was pregnant with me. So they, he wanted nothing to do with her. And, you know, so I guess he wanted nothing to do with me as well. So for the first four years of my life, it was just my mom and I. And I remember us moving a lot um, because again, she didn't have any education. She was here in America. She was here new to America and didn't have necessarily close family and friends. So we moved around a lot and she then met her, um, husband who I will refer to as a predator. 
um, her, the predator and her met and things went um, really, really quickly um, where she, she wanted nothing more I, to be married and to be a wife, to be a mother. Um, so I remember during the dating stage, one incident where um, she took me to go meet him and his brother. This is his younger brother at the time. And my mom, I remember I had to been about four or five years old. My mom went inside the house with her, with the predator, and she left me alone with his younger brother. And that was my first experience with molestation. He acted as if he was playing with me and, you know, and I felt safe. I mean, he was, I was asking him questions. He was asking me questions and I was wearing a little dress. And I remember this dress, it was very colorful and it had hearts on it. And I had my little purse with me. Um, and I remember him having me, like, he held my, he held my arm. And then with his other hands, I always remember this because he had long fingernails and they were black underneath. And he just shoved his hand under my panties. Like he just pulled my, my little panties to the side and just started fondling me. And I didn't understand what was happening in the moment. I just knew I was very uncomfortable and that his, I was scared that his nail was going to cut me. I didn't want him to cut me. And he ended up did cut me because I was moving around and he was trying to make me stand still. And I can remember smelling liquor off his breath. And like, he was trying to kiss me. Like he was kissing my cheeks, but making it, making his way to my lips. I'm only about four or five years old. And I started screaming and wailing and that alerted my mom and she came running from the house and it's like, what is wrong? What is going on? And he, by that time he already stood up and said, you need to, and just started gaslighting my mom. You need to take your child with you. you um, she's misbehaving. She, this is a little devil child. Like just saying things in Creole to kind of remove, to not give me the chance to say what he was doing. He's already trying to curate a lie and it yeah. worked initially but when I started to say no mommy he cut me he cut me here I'm crying to my mom and I'm pointing to her my genital area that was another thing my mom never taught me anatomy never taught me anything about my body I didn't I'm just pointing to her saying he cut me here and she's like cut you there what and she's I remember her going off like what what was your hands doing in her genital area and I don't remember what excuse he made all I remember is from that time it happened so fast the predator jumped on his brother and they started fighting and he started fighting. They started cussing out. My mom was like scared. I'm terrified. I remember her taking me and we lived like down the street. Nothing after that was talked. My mom didn't ask me any questions. She didn't, I don't remember much after that. All I remember is that the predator got closer to my mom. I never saw his brother after that. And later, my mom, a couple months after, my mom said, this is his daughter. At the time, she was probably 11 or 12 years old, and that we're going to be moving in with them. So we move in with them, and shortly after, they get married, and my mom is, like, pregnant. Things moved a lot fast. Like, it, mm -hmm. I was not, in, I just noticed my life changed. I was yeah. not really old. You know, growing up in a Haitian household, children, you're to be seen, you're not to be heard, you're not really involved in whatever's happening. So mm -hmm. it was drastic. Um, so the first time I saw him, he didn't initially touch me. I saw him and I think this is how he groomed me. He forced my mom, she was working at a cafe that was about five minutes away from us. It was like walking distance. It was perfect for her, ideally for her. She was making a probably four or $5 an hour. Um, she forced my mom to quit that job and to take a job that was about 45 minutes away. It was at a factory. One of his friends hooked my mom up. It was not a hookup. She had to take two buses there, back and two. And so that means she was out of the home a lot of the time. And that was his plan. Mm -hmm. um, so she, and then it was in the evenings, meaning by the time he came from work, she had to leave by 2 PM or 3 PM to make it to the bus so that she can make it to work at 5 PM. And so it was perfect because it was just him and myself and my 12 year old sister at the time. And then, um, my younger sibling, mm -hmm. um, I have two younger siblings. Um, they were about, they're about a year apart. So the first time I saw him, I walked in on him raping her. 
like fully, like he left the door open. At first it, in the beginning, they he always had her go in the room and I thought that was strange. Her and I would be playing or watching TV. We had a drastic age difference. So there was not much we had in common, but we loved to watch TV. And that was something that we did because we were both learning English. She had came from Haiti and I'm just now, you know, I'm young. We're both trying to navigate this. Nobody's really helping us, but we're trying to learn. Mm -hmm. And I would always remember him pulling her to the bedroom and it would go on for like 30 minutes. Like she'll be gone for a long time. And whenever she came back, her disposition changed, her mm -hmm. demeanor changed. Like she was very much more sad and, and she did, she was irritable. She didn't want nothing to do with me. She would not make eye contact with me. And so I, one day is when I, I was walking by, it was a really small apartment. It was two bedroom apartment. And I think he did this intentionally where he left the door ajar. And so I'm calling her name. And then when I open the door, he's has her there in her nightgown raping her. And the, and he had the windows, uh, drawed closed. It was during the day. And I always thought this was a dream, but it was something that was, that really did happen. It made the room like a bit blue because my mom had like a bunch of crap. Not that that's very important, but I always, I, I thought that was a dream. And then when therapy, they, they helped me to realize that, no, that was suppressed memory. I didn't understand what was happening, but it, it, it really, I, it had a reaction where I was terrified. That was like the first moment I was terrified. I was uncomfortable. I didn't know what was going on. Mm. I didn't, I thought he was beating her. I thought every time I saw him sexually abusing us or her, her or I, I thought it was the same when they, when my mom would take a belt and beat me. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand or had a concept what sex was. Mm. So once I saw that, and then after that, it became repetitive. I would see that a couple of times a week, he would open the door and he would have me sit there. He would, to the point where he would instruct me or, or tell me I need to sit there on, on the, um, on the, um, they had a bunch of bags, like things that they wanted to send to Haiti. And it was like clothes and covers, like winter stuff. My mom didn't, we didn't have space. So she'll put it in bags and put it like on the wall. And he would tell me to sit on one of those bags or the crates. And while he's raping her in front of me. So mm -hmm. that was my experience. And then um, the way he started raping me is when he would take me and my um, younger siblings showers. Um, he would fondle us. That was the only thing he did. And then once he fondled us, he would instruct me to take myself and my younger sibling a shower. Mm -hmm. I told my mom this one time and they got into an argument. Um, she wanted to understand. I can tell she didn't want to believe me. She wanted to give him a chance to to basically say, no, it was a misunderstanding. I was just taking a shower and this and that. Instead, what happened is they got into an argument and he then said, well, you and your child, good luck raising your child. And all, you know, at this time, my mom now has three kids, two by him and myself. And good mm -hmm. luck raising a child and good luck raising them on four or $5 an hour with no education. And he started putting stuff in his bag. I'm talking about the full scene, like wow, in his bag, taking it, like putting it, it was like, good luck, like F you and your kids and F you and you don't need me. You can do this by yourself. And my mom falls victim to it. She then starts crying, puts her arms around his waist. I'm talking about as he's trying to leave, she's trying to pull his backpack, pull his backpack and his suitcase and say, no, stay, stay. I, I was just asking you questions. It's like, okay, from now on, I will take the kids a shower and you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to do any of that. You don't have to do anything just to just be with the kids. But the, oh my gosh, she was compromising with him. Yeah. And this is something that occurred throughout my whole entire childhood up until the time I was 15, when I first told my mom, like, listen, this is what he's doing to me. And this is what he's done to my stepsister and I. I was seven years old when my stepsister became pregnant. She told her father that she wrote him a letter to explain to him that, um, this, I remember this, like it was this particular incident. I remember it was yes, like it was yesterday. 
she wrote him a letter on a Sunday and I guess he read it and she said that she was pregnant by him and that she hadn't had her cycle and um, she didn't know what to do. And he then on a Monday morning, I guess he was infuriated. He went outside, he went out, God knows where he went. He just came back. And I guess in his mind, he created a narrative that, um, oh, she's a unruly, promiscuous teenage girl who's sleeping around with young boys. And that's how she got pregnant. So he then took an extension cord and beat her to, to beat her and then had her go and move with her aunt in Miami. And he would then believe, he believed so much, just how sick and demented and twisted this monster of a predator was that he did that, then forced my mom, not even really forced, but told my mom like, oh, by the way, this is what's happening in the family now. She's going to live in Miami because she got pregnant. She was promiscuous with a boy. And yeah. And my mom then goes off to, you know, be basically in agreement with her husband. So whenever family friends or anyone from our church in our community say, hey, what happened to her? Where is she? What, where did you guys send her? Oh yeah. She was promiscuous. My mom now, she was promiscuous knowing none of this is true none of this is true because we were not allowed to go anywhere we we had to stay in the house mm-hmm. and so my mom then is going on saying yes yeah, she was this little fast little thing and and people in the family believed it they believed her um they what they didn't know that that was his child and that child would later live with us seven years yes the child yes we'll get to that how that came about living that's how bold and disgusting this man is yeah wicked 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 human being and the whole thing is that I lived in a house where we were Christians and my mom had this fear of evil coming into the house so we weren't allowed to sleep over yeah exactly we weren't allowed to have any sleepovers we were uh we weren't allowed to go to family's house and I believe that was her husband creating these very strict rules where he needed full access to us we I was not allowed to have any active um any um school activities you know, I, I could not join any type of club. Anything that would remove me out of the home or put me in spaces with other children was a potential that I couldn't possibly tell what was going on inside the household. So he used my mom to make sure to keep me in line. And he would play these psychological games as well, very abusive. In public, he came off very charming. He came off very uh, family-oriented, a family man, a man who loves God and loves humor, you know, loves to joke around with people and help people. And so that's part of the reason why when the community found out what he was doing, they didn't want to believe. And I think that's very dangerous because predators play, they play off really intensely of being the good guy. They want to persuade you so bad that this is who they are. They take a shirt off their back. Yeah. Just so it can cover up, if anything, if one of their their crime indecencies, you know, if one of their victims ever came out and say this is what's happening, they have the public to rally up for them and say, no, he took his shirt off his back for me. He took his shoes off and gave to me. No, he yeah. he paid my water bill last week. That man wouldn't have done something like that. Yeah. So he curated a very he curated a false sense of uh, presence around the community that was not that was not real or genuine at all that's also very typical it's very common for predators that they are adored they are loved in their community they are known for being Mm -hmm. these uh, warm-hearted human beings so helpful always ready to help but what I've come to understand through my own story and other people's story it's all part of their disgusting sick twisted games you know it it, it, it's to serve it it serves a purpose very very calculated everything they do is thought through it is it is he did it so people wouldn't believe you if you ever were to speak up and it worked 
Cause that was, he would always tell me whenever, um, after he was sexually abused me, he would, and he saw that I would be in a corner crying or I looked depressed or I looked fearful. And he would tell me that, you know, no one would believe you. Right. And your mom, your mom wouldn't want anything with you. She would probably send you to Haiti. And that always, and I would like sit in the corner, like, no, my family do love me. Like he would tell me nobody would love you. Nobody would care for you. And then I would sit in the corner, just like crying my eyes out made and it worked because it made me feel like what he did to me because I was reacting to it, that I'm guilty. I'm the one that did that's causing this. I'm the one that's, you know, I'm, if I say something that if I say that I'm hurt and that I'm in pain because of what is happening to me, that I'm somehow going to lose the love of my family. I'm going to lose that. And that, that is something that I struggled with, especially, and I'll speak to later on. Um, but it all ended up happening. And those words he uttered always creep up at me at night and yeah. kept me at nights because after, even after I told essentially what he said did play out because he knew he yeah. knew. And I think that's why he, I would find out later on that he has been raping the bodies of black little children infants toddlers teenagers since for over five decades and he got away with it wow so that happened and being raised in a christian background didn't help at all because my mom was very much so into the church she was a pentecostal um to the point where my mom I remember her watching my mom being abused, watching my mom, we would drive one time on I-95 and because she wouldn't give him her paycheck, her whole paycheck, um, he started slamming my mom's head on the window shield and say, you know, just trying to open the door. This is a Toyota, very small Toyota car. And he opens the door and, you know, is like, trying to push her out, but thank God she had the seatbelt on and she was strapped to it. And she's like screaming for her life. Hmm. And those were incidents I remember vividly in my mind. And so I always thought my mom to be a victim as well. I hmm. never, in my life, it wasn't until I became an adult, I realized and I said, oh, my two things can be true. My mother was a victim, but on the other side of the coin, my mother was, um, my mother allowed her husband. She overlooked, she ignored many of the red flags yeah. of the abuse that was happening in that home. Yeah. And I, and I think it was due to survival, yeah. due to not wanting to be shamed, or how she used to always say that she didn't want people in her business or your family to, to know what was going on in her house. So I recall being parentified and adultified since my stepsister had left the home. Um, my mom couldn't afford nanny, so I had to pick up many of the slack. I had to help, you know, feed and care for my two younger siblings. And that was part of the reason why, well, his reason to not allow me to have any activities. I couldn't do anything with the church. I couldn't, you know, stay and have any after school programs. Um, because he needed me there to rape me and to care for his two younger uh, children. When I was eight years old, that was the first and last birthday party I ever had. My aunt in Miami, um, my birthday is December 8th. Hmm. She had me, she called uh, one of my uncles. They came, they picked me up. And I, I have this picture as well. Um, I was so happy. I was with my cousins. I was being a kid. I, for the first time, I was in such a wonderful element. Um, these are cousins who I love near and dear. And I was just being a kid and being celebrated and being, for the first time, I felt like I was just loved and nothing was wanted from me. Like I was given full permission to just be a child and to just be, and I loved it. And the plan was, since I was out of school, I, I could stay my whole Christmas break. So it would have been about three weeks. I could be in Miami with my cousins and just have an amazing time. After day two, my mom, I, uh, my uncle comes at the door and says, your mom called and said, you have to go. And I started crying frantically because I'm like, wait, my mom, that's not true. My mom said I could stay the whole Christmas break. I don't have to go back home. And that's when my mom calls me. Um, I guess they call my mom because they say they I'm not leaving I, or I didn't want to leave because I'm crying hysterically. And so my mom, um, get on the phone with her and 
she then tells me, and I could hear her, I could hear the disappointment in her voice. And um, she's like, no, you have to come home because I need someone to watch the kids. And I'm like, but what about, you know, him? Or why can't you have him watch the kids? Like, no, 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 he's gonna go to work. Um, I'm so sorry, but you're gonna have to, well, she didn't say sorry, but she just, just saying that, listen, pack your bags, pack whatever your auntie gave you and you have to come back home. Um, so I reluctantly, I went home and when I got there, I opened the door and it's the predator. It's my mom. She's getting ready to go to work. And, um, he molested me. He raped me. He would go on to rape me for those whole three weeks. It made me realize that he was the one who made my mom shorten my break yeah. to have full access because he then took two weeks break off as well from work. So wow. what a monster. A couple months later, um, all of a sudden my stomach, one side was getting larger and I was having these abdominal pain um, that was very severe. My mom took me then to um, my pediatrician who then was shocked and said her right ovary for some reason is infected and we don't know what's going on. It's inflamed. There's like a bunch of cysts around it that we want to go and have surgery to remove those cysts because it's hurting her. I didn't have my cycle until I was 12. So there was no reason that this should be happening. And doctors were like up, up arms, like what, what is happening? What is, they were curious. So after that, a couple of days later, my, uh, my doctor then sends me to a specialist and the specialist says, we need to have her on, on a surgery table immediately. So they then schedule for me to have the surgery. I'm terrified because I am, again, my mother doesn't speak or read English. She doesn't understand. I have to interpret everything that's going on for my mom. And um, I, so the day of the surgery comes, I'm lying there. I see the doctor and two nurses walk in and I'm terrified. I've never had surgery before. I don't know what's happened. I hate needles. I hate the smell of the hospital. And my mom's in the corner just praying, have her Bible and her oil. And so just seeing her, the whole experience is making me anxious because nothing more than I wanted in that moment was to be consoled by my mom, but I know I couldn't get that. Hmm. So the doctors come in and the nurse comes in. I remember this white nurse, um, she comes in and she rubs my legs my legs and say how are you doing and they close the door and it's like oh something is going on they're not going to wheel me to the hospital to the surgery room yet and the doctor they pull their mask and they sit down everybody kind of pull a chair and they said do your mom understands what we what we're saying and I said no I have to speak for her and they said we believe that you are sexually active at eight years old I look at them. I didn't understand what they were saying. I heard sex and it's like, I heard that word before, but I'm not understanding. It. And I'm looking at them like, what, what, what do you mean? And my mom is like looking at me. She, I can tell she tells, she feels a sense of urgency. So she's like, she's like, at this point she gets up and she's uh, caressing my hands and saying, what did they say? What did they say? And I, I asked them again. And, and then the white dog, the white nurse, she then says, is someone touching you down there? When she said that, that's when everything went off because prior to me going into the surgery room, uh, the predator for like at least a week kept on telling me, kept on threatening me that if I say anything, he would kill me. He would kill my mom in front of me and then kill me. So he's threatening me, putting these fears into my mind and I believed him. I believe yeah. that he would have killed me. I believe he would have harmed me. Of course um, you believed him. I believe my mom would have done nothing to protect me because there was mm. many times when I told my mom he either beat me, slapped me or punched me because I wouldn't have sex with him. Mm -hmm. My mom would then run to him and say, hey, what did she mean by that? She always did that. What did she mean by that? Almost to give him permission to change the story narrative to one mm -hmm. where she felt like she didn't have to act act and protect me. Mm -hmm. So they look at me and then I, with tears bawling down in my eyes, I said, no, no, there's no, nobody touched me. Nobody ever, I'm terrified. I'm mm -hmm. terrified. I'm looking at my mom. I'm looking at myself. I'm 
mortified. Of course I'm scared of what he's going to do once he find out. It never, never occurred to me that, okay, police would be involved, that he was not supposed to be doing this. This is not healthy. That this, because I, I was so far removed from other children and being in community that mm. I could not talk to someone and say, hey, is this normal? Is mm. a man supposed to touch you this way? Or when I feel sad and depressed, what am I supposed to do with these feelings? Like, this is what's happening at home and I'm scared. Yeah. So. I cried to them and my mom looks at me and she says, what did they say? And I said, mommy, they said that I'm, I'm, um, that something, someone was touching me and, um, down there and she heard the word sex and she was, and she looking at, she's looking at the doctor. She's trying to clarify. She's trying her best in English, translated it from Creole to English, like sex, sex. She's no, no, no. She's a baby. She's, she's mm-hmm. not have sex. She's not have sex. She's a baby. Why would, what she's, saying this in Creole, why would you say that? She was mm-hmm. more upset that the doctor would even insinuate that the reason why my ovary was infected was because I was having sex. She yeah. in her mind created a narrative like, no, this, it couldn't, it was, it's not a possibility. She's yeah. not around anyone. She, was, she kept on saying in Creole, my child is not around anyone. I protect my child. So the doctors believed me. The doctors believed me. They rolled me out, had the surgery. It was supposed to be just to remove the cyst. They end up removing my whole entire ovary. Can can I just, wow. Just, yeah, let's take a breather. <laughs> So you were eight years old and they removed your ovary because the predator had repeatedly raped you and he had infected you. Eight years old because of this, what this monster did to you. Eight years old. And my mother changed the story up to family, friends and church members I don't know if she did this intentionally. I don't know what he might've told her or threatened her, but she ended up telling people that, oh no, you know, she had some cyst or ball in her ovary and they saw it was infected and they took it out, but she can have children in the future because she still has the other ovary. So this was the narrative that my mom, she never ever told anyone in the family that the doctors and two nurses sat her down and said that this eight-year-old child is sexually active. And this is the reason why this is happening. My mother never investigated. She never, ever did anything. And when I asked her, I didn't, I was so terrified and mortified that I didn't, I suppressed that incident. I suppressed that memory. I didn't ask my mom until I was about 30 years old. Like, hey, why didn't you protect me? The doctors did tell you that they believe I was sexually active. Why did I fall in deaf ears? Why did everything that pertained to me, you minimized and you believed him? Yeah. And this is when I realized my mother was mentally not well or that either that or she just convinced herself a narrative so she can absolve, absolve herself from like, I guess being, because if you let my mom tell you, she's much more of a victim than we were in the household. She says that, well, he was doing so much voodoo, doing so much dark magic in the house and that he uh, twisted the words and she believed him and that, that, that that was the reason why she never acted out on any, she didn't know. She was like, as soon as she asked him a question, he would become violent with her and he, he would do things and be, do, do dark magic. And that was the reason why that mm-hmm. she protected me or my stepsister. But you told her, you told her that he was sexually, yeah, that he was sexually abusing you and beat you. So she did know. She did know she was aware, but for her, she convinced herself otherwise mm-hmm. and the fact that I bring it up to her or try to bring it up to her um, after all of these years, she she feels as if she feels disrespected. Like she took it like, oh, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't me. It was, mm. it was that person that did it. So is is and this is a pattern that runs in my family, taking accountability for the roles that you play in destroying people's lives, taking yeah. accountability 
responsibility for the consequences of things that has happened where you have played a part, whether that was intentionally, mistakenly, you did it. You Instead of taking accountability, putting her feet to the fire and apologizing, yeah. she doubles down and says, no, God, you know, she brings this Christianity and try to do bypass. And for years, the Christian bypass worked. For years, the gaslighting worked because I wanted yeah. so to believe that my mom would never put me in that position. But yeah. she did. I think that that is also, you know, not taking accountability is her way of protecting herself because a part of taking accountability that requires that you are courageous enough to look at yourself. What was my part? Where am I at fault? You know, and to, I'm not a mother yet, but I I, I imagine to look at yourself in the mirror mm. and having to admit to yourself, I did not protect my babies. I let this monster do this to my babies. I mean, not to defend your mother, but I think that's a really, really tough one. I can't imagine what that must be like. So I think that her completely denying and even gaslighting you and putting the entire blame on, on, on him, uh, I think it's because it's too painful. She doesn't, she doesn't, uh, she puts the entire blame on the devil. Oh. Even now to this day, she, she, sometimes I ask her, is he the devil? Or is there the devil? She, mm -hmm. it's so hard to explain because I've never really put words to these things. Yeah. I've always them and try to reason it out in my mind, but yeah. it's so complex. It's so hard. Like I'm dealing with two people that were dysfunctional, two people that had their own trauma, yeah. two people that knew nothing but abuse that the, and they enthralled me into their world to the point where I didn't know what was what yeah. I defined my own senses and my own self I'm like something here is not right but why do these people my caregivers keep trying to abuse me to inflict me to so they can stay safe and they can continue on what they're doing and to assure that I don't go out into the world and tell anybody anything that they try to manipulate me into believing that what is happening is not happening yeah it's so fucking mind-blowing and it's like no yeah. this is it is happening it has happened and yeah. me being small I can no longer part of the reason why I wanted to use my voice to tell my story is that I realized for the longest time in my life by me staying quiet I am helping protect the caregivers who were my abusers yeah I'm helping take I'm helping make them feel safe I'm helping yeah. make their narratives come to the light when in reality it's like no that's not the truth you 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 both were horrible you both abused me you both are responsible for the devastation and the trauma that every child in that household endured absolutely and as we spoke about before recording your, your mother definitely has a story you know it's pretty obvious the way that she, her, her behavior, her responses, her, her lack of accountability, the deflection, the gaslighting, um, the way she communicated with uh, the predator, all these things are clear signs of that she definitely went something through herself that maybe you know, maybe you don't, which made her vulnerable to um, uh a man like him you know going into a relationship with a with a predator as we spoke about they know they know how to choose their victims because they can smell us from a mile away they know who who to choose um and as i said before everything about them is very calculated they just don't, they don't go after random people they go after people with certain traits people they know that they can manipulate that they can control and um, he definitely knew who your mother was and she probably never got to know who she was. Yeah. Um, he knew that. Passed on trauma, you know, to her children because she wasn't doing the work. And it sounds like, you know, you even going up to her in your 30s and trying to have a, an adult conversation like, hey, mom, why didn't you protect me? And her still, 
you know, like gaslighting you, talking about the devil not taking responsibility for her part. It just tells me like she's still in this protective mode, you know, protecting herself and not willing to see things as they are. Yeah. And it that made our relationship very difficult for many reasons. It's just not yeah. being protective. But I cannot have an honest, genuine conversation with her because I don't think she has the capacity mm. to do so. She's not even honest with herself because maybe she's not capable of being honest, you know, with, with, with herself. So how can she be honest with you? Yeah. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So after I had the surgery around December and I remember getting out, I was there in the hospital for probably a week and I, um, I was out of the hospital and I remember him picking me up, um, uh, with my mom. And they brought to a house and he cornered, he, I remember him bringing my mom to the bedroom. And I guess my mom told him everything, what the doctor says. And I remember as he's there walking out of the bedroom, she's like, yeah, you don't need to go to that doctor anymore. Just have her go see another pediatrician. Um, so I was not allowed to see my doctors. I was not allowed to see any doctor that said the diagnosis was from a sexual, I think it was either STD till this day. I don't know fully. I don't have the full details. I'm just recollecting what the doctors were telling and I'm trying to remember grasp of it. I know it was an infection that could have only happened because of sexual abuse. And that was the reason why something happened in my fallopian tube and they found something and it, it flared up my ovary and created the cysts, a bunch of cysts. And it was an infection. I don't know if it was an STD. I don't know directly till this day. Um, Can I just ask... Have you considered finding out um, which hospital hospital it was so you can get your medical records and see, was it an STD? What, what was it? And why didn't the hospital do anything? They, they are obligated to, if, if a child is in danger, well, that, at least that's how it is. Well, that's what they're supposed to do in Denmark. Let me say that it does not Okay, maybe today it happens more than it did when when I was a child, but you know they're obligated to to do something about it. Here in well, this was in the '90s, so I don't know what the what their rules were or guidelines on these type of cases. I do have one document. Um, it's 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 very old because it's from the '80s, and I I remember I brought it to my doctor, and I did ask her like, "Hey, this is my history." I know the hospital that I had the surgery in. And when I call them and they say those records are like stored away in boxes that I would pr practically need some judgment or um, it, some judgment or from a court order in order to get access to it. Like it's so far put it away. Like they made it seem like I can't, you know, just pay money, <laughs> pay money and get my medical records being that I'm from the state of Florida. And when I asked my doctor thinking I could go through her and do it, um, she looks at it and she says, well, look at here, something did happen because she says here, they had a social worker go and visit your house. Did anybody ever go visit your house? And I said, I never had a social worker. She's like, yeah, the doctor says here, have social worker visit home. So there were, they completely missed. And they had a doctor, had my doctor said, I'm not gonna send her home because we believe that this child, we have to get to down to the root. Never mind her mother. If her mother is not compliant, then you know, let child protective services deal with this. Had they just kept me at the hospital and re actually removed my mom from the room, it made me felt safe and assured to me that I would not die, my mom would not die, and mm -hmm. that I would, you know, that they would protect me, at least they would attempt to, I would have most definitely most definitely eight years old, open up and tell them like, like this is what's happening at home, that I'm being sexually abused by my stepfather mm. in the home. But they didn't do that. They mm. just woke me off, had the surgery, sent me about my way. And I, I remember coming home from the surgery. I was in a bunch of medication. I was in severe pain. And um, I had like the bandage there and they had like staples on the wound. And I remember that during that time, family members keep coming in to see me, to visit me uh, and to, you know, send their well wishes. And that was, that happened about a week. And it was like on a Friday, my mom was a devoted Christian again, always going to church about three, four times a week, no matter what happening, what's happening in life. 
And it was a Friday. I remember waking up. Um, I was very sore. I think it was probably around seven because it was time for my medication for me to eat and for me to have my medication. Um, and I remember calling out for my mom. I didn't hear from her. I didn't hear from my siblings. So I get up and I'm walking down the hallway and I see the predator watching TV. Um, my mom left me with him. I walked down the hallway and I said, where's my, where's mommy? And he turns around like, oh, mommy went, mommy and your two siblings, they went to church. They're not going to be home until later tonight. And, and then he's like, uh, you got to eat your food and take your medication. And so I'm, I'm in and out. I'm, I'm terif- still terrified. I'm very hypervigilant whenever I'm around him because I don't know when he's going to attack me hmm. uh, or when he's going to, to, to try to rape me. And so I didn't want to eat the food next to him. I wanted to bring it to the room. So I'm like, like taking my food and about to go to my room so I can sit on the floor and eat. Cause I didn't, I hate being around him. Mm. And right when I was about to take the food, he then, he then just told me to put it down, put the food down. And then when, this is how I know when he's about to rape me, when he starts pulling the blinds, turning the blinds, it's it's like seven o'clock, it's fairly daytime. And I started whimpering and it's like, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a lot of pain because I knew what was happening. I knew what he was going to do mm-hmm. and act as if he didn't even hear me. He just went to the bathroom, took a towel and in front of the window, um, there's a, our window that's in our living room overlooks the road and you can see who's coming in and out, who's parking and you can see people walking by. So he puts the towel, lays the towel down. He, he kind of closed the blinds so that he can keep an eye out to see when my mom car pulls up. Mm-hmm. He orders me to come and lay on the ground. Um, so fighting him, I remember him dragging me by my arms. I was weak because I was weak on my, I just had surgery a couple of days from that incident. And um, he, 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 He forced me to lay down on the ground with tears still rolling down my eyes and he raped me. Um, I'm so sorry. I am with you in this moment. Yeah, sharing this vulnerable moment with you. say it out loud and it's like oh shit did this happen this did happen oh my god mm-hmm. um he raped me even when I had the surgery I believe you and I remember feeling worthless lying on the ground I didn't know what was more painful the fact that my I didn't feel like I belonged to my body or I was in this body that was hurting because of a surgery and hurting because I didn't know how to protect myself. Mm. I didn't know what pain hurt. It was emotional pain. It was a physical pain. It was a spiritual pain. I just remember I was in a lot of pain. And I think that was when I, suicide first creeped up in my mind because I wanted help. Yeah, of I didn't course know you did. So at eight, nine years old, I remember fantasizing about suicide yeah because I didn't didn't know another way I didn't know another outlet so um so after he rapes me he then helps me to get off the floor and orders me to go take a shower um I remember take a shower in that house in order to conserve water we weren't allowed to take regular showers we had to take like a bucket in a bowl so I turned the faucet open and I had this like bucket and filled it up with water. And I always did this to remove his stench and his smell off of me because I felt dirty. I took a cap full of Clorox, a clap, cap full of pine saw, and I've mixed it in the water and I would just pour it on me. Mm-hmm. And I remember taking my clothes off and getting in the tub and crying because I'm in pain. Again, I'm in this, I'm in pain emotionally physically I'm trying to figure out how to protect myself I'm trying to figure out how I can make this stop and so I'm just whimpering and crying and I remember the the 
pouring the water on me. I was dissociating. I didn't, I didn't come back to reality until I guess the, the mixture of the Clorox and the pine, pine saw met the, the wound. Hmm. That's when it starts to sting and that's what brought me back to my body. I didn't realize that I, I had, I had left hmm. my mind. I left my mind. I'm like, when did I get in the tub? When did I get, when did I open the water? What happened? It's yeah. like how, all of a sudden I hear my mom and my siblings, like, like I hear my siblings playing and running. They, I hear them running past the bathroom door and going into my bedroom. They're looking for me. And, you know, it was like, hey, you know, we got some soda for you. We got some snacks for you. Where are you? Where are you? And my mom comes barging in the bathroom and she's like, what are you doing in the bathroom? You're not supposed to take a shower by yourself. What are you doing? So she's screaming at me and she's like, wait, why are you crying? And I remember being there naked and just my mom wrapping me in a towel and I'm crying. She's like, oh my gosh, are you in pain? And I'm looking at her like, yeah, I'm in pain. I'm mm. in a lot of pain. Like I wanted to tell her so bad what pain I was in. But then he comes inside the bathroom and forces himself and starts staring at me down the same way he stared at me when I was in the courtroom. And then I'm just looking at my mom like I want to tell her so bad what he did, what he's doing to me, but I couldn't. Hmm. So I didn't say anything. I just cried. And my, my, I remember my mom chastising me. It's like, you, you can't take a shower by yourself. You can't do this by yourself. Not yet. And what are you doing? And get in, the, get in there, get in the room. I'll take care of you. And oh my God. And that would continue on. I think that incident scared him. So there was a brief moment where he stopped raping me. And, and this is when he would then have his, his mistresses move in to, um, we, we had a home and back of the home had like a separate, um, it had a separate home where we would often rent it out to people in order to supplement, make supplement income. And mm-hmm. he would rent it out to his mistresses. Yes. And my mom caught him. And so he would move in his mistresses in that home. And it, that lasted a couple of months until my mom, my mom caught him. And I remember having to help my mom with that because, you know, it was devastating to her. And it was so, it's such a weird dynamic as a child. I'm over here listening to a grown woman divulge information that I, from a child perspective, I did not need to know. Mm. And, and so it to me, I hate seeing my mother hurt, but I much rather his mistresses there. Like even if I knew that he was going to have sex with them, I would have never told my mom. And I did as a child, I suspected because I figured he's not raping me. I feel safe for this moment of time. He has his attention on uh, these women. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to say anything they kicked out the ladies. And then that's when, again, the rape started to ensue. It picked up. It didn't stop until when I was about 12 years old, when my mom told him I had my period. Like the first day I had my period, I guess, because he didn't want to have another child because remember he impregnated his daughter. And so now he doesn't know how to not impregnate me. So then he stops, but then he was still trying to corner me. And then new things started to emerge my mom started to give me freedom because I was awarded a full-time scholarship for an essays that I had wrote. And my English teacher then um, recommended me and then I, I wanted, but part of having this um, college um, scholarship was I had to do volunteer hours. So that was my saving grace where I came from a home where I had to, I was my second, I was a second mom I, I was not allowed to have any other activities, any hobbies. I had to be at home at all times. Now I have the liberty to do things. I'm in a community much more. I'm in Boys and Girls Club. I'm, I'm, you know, I have hobbies and interests. I now have friends away from the home. So being able to have that was such a saving grace. And what ended up happening is that he started to stalk me. I remember I was at the library doing my community service hours and one of the managers, she came up to me and she said, is that your dad? And I was like, who? And she was like, that man is always in a green car. He never is here to pick you up. But it's like, as soon as you're here, his car is parked out in the front. And she's like, come here. So she brings me to the window. And it was one of those libraries where if you look through the window, you, you have to kind of do like this to look for the person, but you can't really see people looking at, back at you. Mm-hmm. It was one of those windows so she brings me to it she said there he goes 
And I see him in the corner like this on the glass looking for me, like looking. And she's, she's like, go out there and see what he wants. And so I, and she's, and I could tell that she's like at the door waiting for me. So, and he doesn't see it. But when I turn the corner, I said, um, are you looking for someone? And he's like, yeah, what time are you leaving? What time are you leaving? Your mom said she needed you home. And I'm looking at him. I knew he was lying because mm -hmm. my mom was going to drop me off. My mom knew where I was at. And so I said, no, my, my mom dropped me off. She knows where I'm at. And he, without even looking at me, he just walks back to his car and just driving like leaves. Wicked, so, wicked, wicked. That would continue happen. And then again, when I was 14, as I had mentioned prior, my mom walked up to me and said, what is your, confronting me as if I was another woman on the street, asking me, why did she find my bra and my panties in, the, in his drawers, in his suitcases? She, no, she found my panties in my bra in his drawers in his drawers and she found some of my clothes, my undergarments in his suitcase. And when I look, I looked at her like in utter, like shocked that the way she, her whole demeanor coming to ask me, like, what, what, what are you, as if I had a plan, as if I intentionally did this. And so I looked at her and I said, why don't you go and ask him? Because I know that was her fear. Yeah. When she, went and asked him like, Hey, what her whole demeanor changed with me. It was more so accusatory with him. It was like, Oh, by the way, I was just, you know, cleaning the house. And then I found, you know, my daughter's panties and bras in your drawer. What, what, were they there? Did, were they misplaced? Like she giving excuses before he even give excuses. This was yeah. the so he then looks at my mom and says, oh, no, you know, I took those, um, you know, I'm going to Haiti in the summer and I wanted to give uh, some of the girls clothes that the kids don't wear anymore. Mm -hmm. And my mom's looking like, but these are clothes that she still wears. So why are you? She's like, no, it was an honest mistake. And she left it at that because he said it was an honest mistake and honest. It's, everything was always an honest mistake and an error. Mm -hmm. So. He left it at that. And I'm like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? Are you yeah. fucking, did she just really buy into that? Yeah. So, I mean, even the, even the way she, she, she turned to you in this, was it, what did you say? Accusatory way? Accusatory way. Like and, why was it here? And then to him in a very submissive and. Not to push him off the yeah. edge of him to blow up on her yeah cause an argument I thought it was because my mom was bad with kids and that she just didn't know how to give compassion to us mm. and it was like like no she knows how to be compassionate it's just whether or not who is going who's a threat to her survival who is a threat to her she could like cuss us kids which my mom was abusive to us the more abusive her husband was to us it was such a vicious cycle and mm -hmm. it I saw him beat her. I saw him degrade her. I saw him humiliate her. And she had no punching bags. She had no friends, no outlet. You know, she used Christianity as a disguise, as a blanket to make herself comfortable and to cope and survive. I'm sure what was what she went through was traumatic. But mm. then she internalized a lot of it and she would regress and lash out on me and my siblings. So yeah. we eaten and slapped by her as well and chastised because she was over it she was in over her head and she she yeah. didn't have outlet she didn't know how to make it stop and as a child I took that personally because I thought maybe I did something wrong or that she didn't love me but as from an adult perspective I'm like oh okay she was in out in and over her head not to make excuses for her but she was going through it as well and the only people who needed her, she didn't know how to give to them. So mm. and she knew how to give was basically her anger. That's that's the only emotion that yeah. I got from my mom. Other than when we were sick, that was the only time we saw the kindness and we got some of that compassionate as well. Other than time, it was, it was almost like she was reserving it for her husband. She was fighting to show that she was worthy and mm -hmm. fighting to get that validation from him. But yeah not accept that I don't believe he ever loved my mom. I don't ever believe he wanted anything to do my mom, with my mom. It's just, he saw someone malleable. He saw yeah. someone 
easy. He saw someone that would allow him to rape the bodies of infants, toddlers, any children in his his vicinity. And all he had to do was either fight her or cuss her out. And she would acquiesce to whatever he wanted. And he Mm. It worked. It worked until I was 15 and I was fed up with the both of them. And it was something that I've never disclosed to anyone in my family. The reason why I told at 15 was because they were in one of their arguments um, where I had to referee again, as always. It was a summertime. Um, He had not paid the light bill. He had not paid... um, uh, the mortgage and we, the house was going on foreclosure. I told my mom this, I said, listen, um, I read the letter, the letter from the bank. And they said the house is going to go on foreclosure because he has not been making any payments. He had stopped working. And I realized I was able to put two and two together that he was planning to leave for good. Cause at this point he was no longer molesting me or rape me. He had no child or anyone that he could rape. He has no use. So Two years prior to that, he moved his son's slash grandson that he conceived with his daughter. Um, I guess she was going through, my stepsister was going through something in her life and she could no longer care for the little boy. So he moved in and had myself, my siblings and my mom lie to everyone and say that, oh, he was just being a good grandfather, taking in his grandson, raising his grandson as one of his own. When this is a predator who never took care of his uh, two that was in the house, never bought them a backpack, didn't care, would often tell my mom whenever they got sick, my sister went through a lot of um, seizures as a child would often tell my mom, oh, I could make another one. I don't care about you and your children. Yet he wanted us to lie and to tell people that, oh, because he was such a good person, that that's the reason why he's the, this little boy is living with us. Little did we did not realize that my stepsister threatened him and said, you're going to take this little boy, you're going to raise him, this is your child. And if you don't, I'm going to tell the world that you raped me and that you conceived the child with me. And that is why he took the little boy and, and raised him. And not even raised him, he severely abused the little boy. If the little boy so much sneezed, he would slap him across the room. Didn't, wouldn't feed the little boy. The little boy was really skinny. I'm talking about severe abuse here. And this is where I looked at my mom because she didn't interfere. She didn't interject because I believe my mom knew who that little boy was. Mm. It was. So she didn't interject. And I'm like, as a Christian woman, this is very hypocrisy. Yeah. Hypocrisy at its finest. Mm. So again, at 15 years old, I then, they get into an argument. Um, they, this, this is a very, this is after I disclosed to my mom that I think he's going to leave you. I think he's leaving you and he's going to leave you poor. Um, that we had family members that was helping us um, at this time. They were, um, during the summer, my mom had no money, so she couldn't buy food. She couldn't buy us clothes. So family members were uh, supporting us in every capacity that they can. And they, an argument ensued. So he starts yelling and telling my mom that, oh, I no longer need you. I no longer want you. Yes, I'm going to Haiti. I don't care what you and your family do. Good luck with paying the house and the bills. And he's like, I already have my stuff packed. Um, Then my mom, this is the first time I see my mom break down in a way where she realized that he is, he is this time around, he's for sure going to leave her. And I think that she realized that, okay, how am I going to survive with three kids? She breaks down and she's the first one in 12 years. My mom was the first one in this last argument that they had to be physical with him, where she walked up to him and she slapped him Mm -hmm. and he's, she's about five, five and he's six foot. So he then gets up and then just punches her and she falls to the ground. And so she, she's holding her face. She's crying and she looks up at him. I'm in between them. I'm trying to peel him off of my mom. And she says, well, I should have left you the night I saw you on top of your daughter. There it is. There it is. You know, she said that she knew, she knew all along. See, she did know. She did understand what was going on. That shocked me. And that, for the first time, shocked the predator. Because I don't think he was expecting 
to hear that. It was almost as if it was a secret that nobody ever spoke of. Yeah. Speak of because he had created so much chaos and violence in the home that us as children, we were fearful of him. Yeah. Evidently, my mother was fearful of him as well. Yeah. You were all victims in that household, for sure. You all were in different ways, but you were all victims. Once he said, once she said that, and he started gaslighting, but gaslighting in a way that he never did before, where he couldn't make eye contact and his whole body language was like, what the fuck? I don't care. I'm leaving. I don't care what you've seen. Essentially telling my mom, I don't care what you see and what you think you see and goes back and sit down and eat his food. Like nothing ever mattered because wow. in, in his mind, he had cash his 401k. He had already he quit his job. He, he's about to lose the house. He doesn't care. He's going to go and live in Haiti and doesn't care what happens to us. So my mom gets up, she goes to her room. She closed her door. She, I'm still in a bit of shock. I'm still, something is happening inside of me. I'm angry. I'm emotional. And it took me, I think a couple of days out of nowhere, just sitting down. Cause I told myself, I would never say anything to anyone. I would die with this. I would never let anyone know what this monster did to me in our home or to my stepsister. And it was like a voice says, now it's time. And I was like, wait, what? Now it's time. And it's like, I'm not saying anything. Are you crazy? This man's going to kill me. And it was mm-hmm. like, now you have to say something. And I tried many attempts to tell my mom, but I never felt safe around her. It was like my mom was in her own world. It's, um, it was one of those fan- households where the adults were the only one that were able to emote and be heard. Myself and my sister um, did attempt suicide before we were even 12. And my brother, by the time he was 10, twice had tried to run away. So that tells you what type of the dynamic or what was going on in that household where we were trying to remove ourselves. Yeah. That's how we were in. That was it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to raise our chemical voices and share this episode on your social media. If you'd like to guest on the podcast or share your story anonymously, please find the link in the episode description. Until next time, 